Hi, my name is Blue, and I'm the host of this new podcast, The 21st Century Teacher, with Livid Earth. And my job is to ensure that our teachers and students get the most out of our programs. This new podcast series is just one of the ways I'm going to be supporting our community of educators with a monthly conversation with a special guest educator discussing a different aspect of 21st century teaching and learning. A reminder that if you are a teacher in British Columbia and now the Yukon or the Northwest Territories, thanks to focused education resources, you now have access to our blended learning library for K to seven teachers. If you would like more information about our programs, please visit our website, liveit.earth. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Ellen Field, who's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Lakehead University, where she teaches climate change education and environmental education. Ellen's research focuses on policy and practice of climate change education. She has completed a research study that will result in case studies on creative and diverse ways that teachers are implementing climate change education. Ellen has also completed a national study on youth climate anxiety. So today I would like to start by acknowledging that I am in the Slocan Valley just north of Nelson, BC. And this is actually the traditional territory, the unceded territory of the Snake, the Silk and the Tanaha, and also 5,000 from the Métis Nation. And I'm incredibly grateful to get to live, work and play here where I've raised my three sons with my wife, who is actually Métis Cree. And we are very diligent about raising them with a connection to nature and their surroundings, and also to understand something about the peoples, the first peoples that walked before us. And today I'm really excited to have Ellen Field with us. And Ellen, I'm really grateful that you've taken time out of your day to join us. Thanks for having me. So let's dive straight into our first question, which is, how do we teach climate literacy and also empower them for action? And having said that, and I'm really interested as a parent raising my kids to have an understanding of, you know, the environment and some of the issues that are coming up. What are the challenges with teaching such a big, scary topic? Thanks for that. And I like that we're starting with the big question because it does require a bit of unpacking. So, um, if you follow me a little bit, I'll just sort of unpack that a bit. I agree completely with you that climate literacy is a first step, and it's so important to start there. And over the weekend, um, I talked to an 11-year-old about this, and and it was interesting. He asked me, he said, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I do research on climate change education and how climate change should be taught in schools. And he sort of said, cool. And then I asked him about how he learns about it in school, and he said, I don't. And so then I asked him about how he learns about it. Um, And he said, well, on the news and through his own experience, he said, you know, this winter was so weird, the wildfires. He said, I I know what it is. I learn about it. And so this is like a small anecdote, but kids are learning about climate change, um, whether it's in the news or family conversations, it is around them. Um, And it's not always in schools. Um, And so coming back to your question a little bit is kids learn also about challenging topics in schools all the time because it's information they need to know in order for them to be ready to respond to what's happening in the world. 
So I'm going to highlight this idea or the need for responsive education systems. And this is where I'm going to kind of take a step back and unpack it a bit. Um, Because in the 21st century, century, we're living in this moment um, where humanity is facing several intersecting crises. Um, One is the climate crisis. Another one is really, it's not so much a a crisis, but sort of the way that technological disruption and the emergence of AI, uh, data surveillance, um, how that will transform society. And the third is really around our democratic institutions, um, our equity and well-being, and how these um, institutions, as well as those systems, are being challenged by systems that are not serving people or planet. And with that, I'm, or with this, I'm referring to the shift in distribution of wealth over the last 40 years to the one in 0.01%, and the ways that income and wealth intersect with other social vulnerabilities like gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, and immigration. And so these are all actually, sadly, social determinants of health. And so all three of these are what some scholars and and people refer to as the polycrisis of the 21st century. So if education systems intend to be responsive to the challenges of the 21st century, then they need to be contending with these arising challenges of um, our time. So back to this question about some of the challenges of learning about scary or challenging topics. And um, so one of the things that kids learn about that's really scary, just to give a few examples of this, um, like I have a daughter who's in grade one. This year she learned about school lockdowns and what you do in a school lockdown drill. Um, And it was so confronting to her, but it's a requirement for her to know what to do in the event that there was an active shooter that came into her school, right? And I mean, this, she learned about it four months ago and we, she'll still have, it'll still come up but in moments and she'll say, is this, a, if, if, if we needed to have a lockdown, is this where we would hide in the room or do would we hide over here, right? But this is an important thing for her to know if there was this event, how to respond in the moment, okay? Another example that kids learn about is really around um, truth and reconciliation in the 60s scoop, where indigenous children were taken from their families and placed into the child welfare system, often without consent of their families. And so this is really scary stuff for a young learner, the idea of being taken away from your family without consent, your family agreeing. I mean, that's the stuff of nightmares. But society and school leaders have recognized that this is important for learners to know so that history does not repeat itself, so that systemic racism can be identified and named. And so, and the same is the same is for the lockdown drill. Um, and so there is this need to prepare students for the world that they live in. And in many dimensions of their learning, they learn scary things in order for them to be prepared. Now, I would argue the odds of an active shooter coming into a classroom in Canada are actually quite low. But if you ask young people today, have they experienced climate change? Most of them will say yes. And so it's this interesting sort of dilemma we're in as to why are some really scary topics okay to teach and then others are not there. 
Um, and so this is really where I think we can raise that sort of climate change, this, the narrative on climate change has really been fundamentally flawed and politicized. So climate impacts we are experiencing are really just symptoms of the carbon cycle and the water cycle being totally out of whack. And it's natural systems trying to regulate that there's too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And we need to get real, like we need to get so much better in our comms and in our education on connecting to the dots and what is causing climate impacts. And you don't have to dig very far, but it, but you do have to dig. Like if you look at um, communications on um, the latest fire or flooding event, how many um, articles mention fossil fuels as the primary driver? Often it's just climate change. And so we really need to get a lot better at connecting those dots. And this is where a lot of educators get uncomfortable because this has been politicized because of how fossil fuels are tied to our economy. But if you look at the refuted or the unrefuted evidence, of what is causing climate change, it's fossil fuels. And so we need to figure out like society, not necessarily like in her classroom, but on a social level, we need to figure out how to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And just like the analogy of, of health, like if you are sick and the doctor says you're at risk of cancer and they say, I need you to adjust your lifestyle, you do it. So it is a scary topic, just like any health scare, because we're facing uncertainty. It is an existential moment. Um, and we're asked in this moment, like, will we kick the habit of a pack a day and make the healthy choices? Or will we continue on a path that we know will affect our health in our lifetimes and most certainly affect the generation following us? So, you know, and just to sort of solidify the impact, every tenth of degree of warming will cause human suffering. So we really don't have much wiggle room as to how much we can say, oh, well, we, we just want to ensure that our shareholders get in order. Like that is actually direct human suffering. And so we have to ask ourselves these hard questions in our policies and actions. So never in the last 100,000 years has a concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere been as high as it is. In May, which is always the highest that the carbon dioxide concentrations are recorded in a year, we hit a new high, of course, as we do every year, but of 424 parts per million. Um, and in the modeling, if we continue on trajectories that many developed countries currently have, Canada included, are for two, probably three degrees of warming. And we're already experiencing about 1.1 to 1.3 degrees, depending on where you are in Canada. And you can already see the stress in the systems and the natural systems trying to regulate that extra greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So... The challenges with teaching young people that we're facing unprecedented risk and that our governing policies do not safeguard stable climates for them means that young people will most likely feel betrayed. So if we're teaching climate change ed in a way that actually gives young people a full picture, they're probably gonna feel betrayed. And this is a big part of climate anxiety. So from my own experience, I teach a grad class in climate change education in our MED program at Lakehead, um, students often experience a psychological fallout that occurs. And these are these are older students. These are not, you know, your grade one student. Um, 
but it almost it happens in almost every year that I teach the course and they come to learn that the word world's governing systems are not protecting people or planet when it comes to climate impacts and their well-being. And so we do a lot, I do lots of things in my class to sort of help prime them that the content is going to cause them some distress, um, that there is strategies, coping strategies they can do uh, while they're learning. And then as we move further into the content, they're going to learn about all the solutions and all the things that can be done. But we first need to establish this baseline of um, both urgency and risk that we currently have. So as educators and adults, I think we have to ask ourselves, do we treat young people paternalistically and decide that they're too young, too immature to learn about climate change and the reality of it? Or do we decide to be honest, to share with them the reality that we're facing unprecedented risk and uncertainty that previous generations have basically not taken care of them? Um, and by being honest, and it is scary, we're able to maintain trust. We provide them an opportunity to learn about this throughout their educational experience so that they do not feel blindsided when they come to understand it in its full complexity or find out that this information has been guarded from them. And so from an educational perspective, we actually do a bigger disservice to children and young people when we shield them from the truth, however scary it is. So the level of cognitive dissonance that many young people experience as I, as I described this 11 year old, I talked to over the weekend, as they go through school, it's very high. Um, and so it's up to our education system, our policymakers, our school board administrators, our department heads, and our teachers to ensure that students are receiving quality climate change ed and to ensure that our education systems are being responsive to the challenges we face in society. So climate, yes, but all of these other challenges because they're quite interlinked. Um, and so there are also big changes that are required to shift our systems to be more responsive. But I think one of the things that is missing when we frame climate impacts in its uncertainty as only negative is we rob the future of hopeful possibility. And so our window of opportunity in the moment is closing, but we still have um, space and time to take action. And we are at such a profound moment in human civilization, where if we address the symptoms that the natural world are expressing and deal with root cause in a fair and equitable way, we'll have such transformed and better lives. And so this is this is also opportunity knocking. Um, so we really sit in this place um, where we get to many of us as adults, um, as well as young people who are involved in um, climate justice movements are helping chart hopeful futures. Um, and the last thing I'd just like to say about this is that when we take kids seriously and trust them with information, you can, uh, you can allow them to feel empowered to take relevant actions, find local solutions. And so for me, I'm really, uh, as a teacher educator, um, and as someone who does research with teachers, I I'm feel like I'm constantly impressed with what I'm hearing teachers are doing. And so I really advocate for, for supporting teachers to allow for those flourishing conditions in their classrooms, to empower kids, to be honest with them, so that their ideas can be wildly sowed throughout our school systems. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, you got me thinking a lot. Having kids myself, 
and being involved in outdoor education. So I'm wondering, and I think about this with my kids. I have a nine-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. So he, you know, early days for him. Um, but you, if I'm right in saying you completed a national study on youth climate anxiety. So I'm wondering, what can you share with us about that? Yes. So we, um, Dr. Lindsay Galway, who's the Canada Research Chair in Socioecological Health, and I worked together on this um, project. And we followed up. So there was a really important Lancet study in 2011, led by Carolyn Hickman, that did an international, um, the first sort of international benchmarking of climate anxiety among young people. But Canada wasn't included. So the original study had 10,000 young people from 10 different countries. Uh, the U.S. was included, the U.K. was included, but Canada wasn't. And so what we did is we replicated that study to ensure that we had a Canadian benchmark for uh, a benchmark for Canada. Sorry, but we also added eight questions to the survey tool to ask the young people who were surveying ideas for what are the supports that they need and the ways that they do um, handle their different coping strategies. So just big picture. Um, the study looked at 16 to 25 year olds. So these are high school students and mostly post-secondary or out of high school. They weren't all um, in post-secondary. Um, and I mean, I think for folks who are familiar um, with any of this research, I mean, big picture, the way to summarize it is the kids are not all right, <laughs> Be the kind of like motto or tagline. Um, but really young people in Canada are experiencing a constellation of challenging climate emotions at high levels. So I'll just I'll just read a few of the stats just to sort of succinctly share what those are. Um, so being afraid was 60. So all of these are between 66 percent and about 55 percent afraid, sad, anxious, helpless, powerless and ang angry. Um, and in terms of that. 80% of participants report that climate change impacts on their overall mental health, and 40% report at least moderate impacts on their daily life. Um, and the survey data really show that climate change is contributing in myriad ways to their negative thoughts about their future. So 48% believe that humanity is doomed. 73% report thinking that the future is frightening. 76 report that people have failed to take care of the planet. Uh, 39% report hesitation about having children to climate change. And so our data really shows, um, because we asked young people as well about how they feel the Canadian government has responded. And it shows that inaction at the systemic and structural level shapes the lived experiences of the climate emotions and climate anxiety among young Canadians. So 64% um, don't think the Canadian government is doing enough um, and that correlated with a sense of betrayal. Um, so that compounds that experience of climate anxiety. Um, as well, we found that um, 20, this, this one's really interesting. And I think for organizations that are doing work with especially teenagers in this space, I don't know exactly what the programmatic answer to this is, but I think it's one that we really need to focus in on. So 25% of young people identified that they seek emotional and mental health support from others. So a quarter of them do. However, one third of them also report they don't talk about climate change, even though so many of them are experiencing it. 
And then another third reported that when they do, they feel ignored or dismissed. So how do they, they then cope if they're not talking about it, if they're not, you know, um, and among teachers I've talked to, so this is separate to the survey, um, generally teachers have said that this only comes up mostly on like one-on-one -on -one conversations. So informal conversations in the hall or, um, and other research suggests that young people don't feel that they actually want to talk about their emotional vulnerability in their classrooms with their teacher, that they don't feel safe to actually share about how they're feeling around this. So that's where I think it's a really interesting space for um, organizations to think about how to provide these other support spaces or how, let's say, a school social worker is also providing these supports and naming climate anxiety. Um, so I think there's a lot of work in there. So, yeah, I find it interesting because my, I'm talking about my kids. So I guess it's hard not to, when you have your own kids, not to think of it for, through a parenting lens and sort of see how they reflect what they're picking up back to me. And I find on a younger level, they very much advocate for the environment. Sort of my kids do anyway. With the programs that we do at Libid Earth, for example, we have one from last year on Arctic communities. So it's cross-curricular learning, but we use some of these climate change issues as an anchor point to do the learning around. So it's not necessarily within the curriculum, but we kind of use it and bring it into the curriculum in that way. And at the end of each program, well, it's not technically the end of the program, but it's the piece that will come at the end if you're working through the program as a teacher. And we have a call to action. And that call to action could be any number of things, but it's certainly getting the kids to to have that focal point at the end around something positive that they can do um, to take away from it. So like, oh, we've learned all these things. Now what can we do? Let's like, let's be proactive in that way, which I really, really like about our programs. So I'm wondering, there is a cross-curricular guide for 7 to 11. Um, and so I'm wondering if you've done any work or you've got any ideas around the K to 8, any ideas that you can share around that? Sure. And I think the, the piece I'll just also add about climate anxiety is, and then speak to the younger grades, um, you know, climate anxiety is not considered a, like a mental illness. It's not a diagnosis um, in like medically. Um, and there's research that's showing that for most people, having a level of climate anxiety is normal. It means that you are aware of what's happening in the world. Um, you see these changes. Um, and so for most of the population, it won't turn into um, generalized anxiety. But for a part of the population, it might. Um, so we don't want to just say it's totally normal. Don't worry about it. I mean, it is upsetting. It is unsettling. Um, so just to sort of foreground that. and. So whatever uh, grade appropriate strategies are put forward, I always suggest that a teacher uses their understanding of that student's social emotional well-being as to how they teach the content. And uh, climate change education, like, has always been really sort of situated in the science, and it's always been very cognitively focused. 
in terms of what what kids when they do learn about it it is generally through and the programs are generally designed around sort of that knowledge and understanding of the science and then the impacts and then what what maybe society can do but i as research is really proliferating around climate anxiety as well as the coping strategies that are effective we we do need to be mindful of how our education systems can help respond and take on what that research is sharing um and so teachers teachers are really actually the best position because they know their students and they know where they are at and um and so whatever frameworks are put out there i think it need you know we need to also consider the social emotional dimensions of this learning and so a teacher should be able to say actually i'm going to maybe move the, the really climate stuff maybe 2 months into the future because my class is just we're not, you know, there's a lot of conflict in the class right now, but we're just not in a good place. And so I, that's where I think all of it needs to be sort of at the discretion of the teacher to gauge where their students are at. However, um, there are uh, some really interesting examples. So when we look at um, systems of education that actually have integrated climate change education, um, so New Jersey is a great example because they've integrated it throughout their K to 12 system. Um, and so, and they've implemented it. They've been, I think it's this year is one year that it's been in full implementation. So there's learning that can happen out of like those kindergarten classrooms. You know, what are the conversations? How has it been integrated and scaffolded? Um, and mostly this, every, all the research that I've seen coming out of New Jersey is that in those early years, as you said, um, the focus on solutions orientation, that kids love animals and they also love being outside and they want to help. Like young learners really want to be helpful. And so the ways that that can be scaffolded in that solutions orientation, I think is, is really relevant. Um, and the other piece uh, that I always suggest as sort of a, a guideline is I mean, I think K to 12 should have much more outdoor experiential education than it currently does um, for all of the co-benefits that outdoor experiential education has for all types of learning, whether that's math, language, uh, social studies, history, um, but specifically for climate, the um, there are so many co-benefits that help with with some of the difficult parts of climate anxiety. So it, you know, being outside can improve self-regulation for young learners. It can also help them get much more active. So if you're doing a tree planting, then that can also help sort of offset that feeling of not having any control or not being a part of taking action. And so the more that learning can shift, especially for early learners, but I would say the whole K to 12 system outside to being action oriented um, and outdoor just to help offset so much of the climate anxiety is gonna help. Yeah, I totally agree with that. As an outdoor educator for many years, I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. Um, and so, well, actually let's jump to this question I have for you. Can I actually add one more thing? Yeah, of course. Because I think um, it's interesting. I walked to school uh, with my daughter who's in grade one and 
we have to walk down the side of the school, which is where the kiss and ride is. So where the kids who get dropped off by their cars. And it's like this plume of exhaust that we walk by. And my daughter always says, oh, and everyone's idling because they have to, because it's a slow incremental move up the line. And I, I, you know, I don't want to blame those parents. I understand not everyone can walk to school or the kid, you know, there's various reasons. But my daughter mentions often, she'll say, you know, we talk about it and we are lucky that we recently got an EV. We were able to transition to having a Geo. She'll say, why don't people drive EVs? So we talk about the cost, we talk about all of these things. But I think ways that um, even, I mean, young learners get it in terms of, you know, where you can shift to walking to school, it's better for them. It reduces their emissions, Um, biking to school, or there was, I would say like 10 to 20 years ago, there was, I feel like much more anti-idling information. And I've seen that go away in my area anyway. So I think there's a lot that can be done there as well as, um, uh, eating low carbon diets, which also have all kinds of health benefits as well. So there's, there's so many ways that the co-benefits of sort of leading uh, or living a lower carbon lifestyle can also help young people. So as they're learning outdoor experiential ed, for sure, but there's all kinds of other lifestyle things that can be integrated. And a lot of those things can be integrated into the classroom. And always using the lens, sorry, and always using the lens of like equity and inclusion because not everybody can get an EV, not everybody can walk to school. So, you know, always infusing it with and centering justice. You know, it's great. And yeah, we're very lucky we're two blocks away from school. So yeah, walking to school is not an issue in a rural community where we live. But many do have to drive because we are in a rural community. So people live in the satellite villages and, you know, out homesteading or whatever. But it's, um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I think the impact of kids connecting to nature is massive because I think unless you care about nature, it's really hard to then sort of pull in the other pieces. So yeah, how important, you know, in the work that you've done and the studies, you know, as you talk to teachers and students, how important is the actual connection to the natural world as part of this education? And what does that look like in schools? I know you've already said that there needs to be more of it, but from your experience, what are people doing? Have you got any examples of what's being done well that other people could take on? Yeah, sure. Um, I would also... It's an interesting piece because nature-based education, I'll just start with this first. Nature-based education is so important for developing that relationality with the natural world and and developing that appreciation. I actually don't, I actually disagree with some of the literature that, that are, that sort of claims that that will lead to people taking action. Um, I think those are, those are different pathways that that are often around identity development and social group norms and the ways that action and activism uh, arise. So uh, nature-based experiences from the work, uh, from the ways that I articulate that for education is often around the co-benefits and the importance of that relationality for us to understand that we are are a part of the natural world, that there are life cycles, um, that there are uh, that there are systems that are much larger than us that govern um, life-serving systems. Um, but I don't always think that it it leads to 
you know, youth climate leaders, because a lot of the youth climate leaders that I've talked to don't necessarily have a strong background in nature connection. They have been exposed to groups like Fridays for Future. They've been a part of different social groups that have allowed them to see, or they've come from social justice and they've brought that background. So um, I do find sometimes there's like a, a, a claim there that doesn't always link to what creates leaders or leadership. Um, in terms of programs that work well, um, we know from research that when young, the most effective way to get young people involved is to ensure that they are in social groups that support uh, the acceptance of climate change, um, as well as teach leadership capacity. So they actually teach leadership skills. Um, and all of the uh, really effective youth groups that I've seen have often come out of leadership programs in high schools rather than environmental extracurricular clubs. And so we sometimes think that like if we teach the knowledge about what's happening, then young people are just going to sort of innately take leadership. And I think there's it's important to recognize that having a sense of efficacy and having actually explicit leadership skills taught is going to be a stronger determinant of ensuring that young people uh, take action, take leadership. So um, there's a variety of programs that offer that. Uh, like I know new, um, the Gaia Project has a youth climate leadership program that they run in the summers, uh, which I think is a powerful sort of incubator that does explicitly teach those leadership skills. Um, there's also a, quite a few interesting programs um, that teachers tap into, uh, I think it's Destination Imagination, which is a STEM uh, like challenge. So to build something uh, and to solve a problem. And um, some teachers I know will take that, that call. It's like a competition across all kinds of high schools and they'll take that call and they'll, they'll infuse it with a climate or sustainability challenge if it's not explicit in the, in, um, and that way they um, get their students to do solutions that way. There's a future cities program as well, which is like to design that same kind of competition challenge. So any of those um, kind of hackathon models, I think are really effective at the high school level um, to get people, to get students um, actively engaged in solutions and, and thinking diversely, um, creatively and innovating. So the, as well as like, some of the design thinking projects that are happening um, are very powerful. The one sort of resource I'd really like to highlight is uh, the Climate Atlas of Canada, which is just an incredible resource for educators. I would say um, grade six and up is probably the right uh, grade levels to be working, to be using it, um, but it takes, um, it, it basically allows for you to look at any region and to look at current climate impacts across a whole bunch of different variables and also look at the future emission scenarios and impacts for that region. But then there's all kinds of really great 
media and focus stories around solutions. And they have an entire piece on indigenous uh, uh, storytelling, so indigenous examples of um, solutions and also stories. So uh, I think that's a really rich place to look for content. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, here at Live at Earth, with the programs that we're doing, our focus is to, because it's K, well, I say K to nine, but often it's K to the seven range um, here in BC, is to get them really excited and interested about the topic and then pull them back into activities in a hands-on way to go and explore and get in the nature around them. Even in a city, it could be just at the local park. And that way, I think that's our focus is to really, yeah, create that connection and that sense of caring at a young age and just to create the inquiry, you know, that curiosity really, but to start asking questions and hopefully with the call to action that we have as well, bringing that in is to make them feel that they're, you know, learning and being productive, you know, moving, you know, doing what they can, doing that little bit within their home and within their community. And so I'm just wondering with resources like Live at Earth, like what can we learn from the research and analysis? Like, sure. yeah, do you have any tips and tricks that we can, so we can be better doing what we're doing? Well, I think actually that model is probably like you're, you're aligned with best practice, right? To have a tangible real world experience and then to scaffold information around that experience so that it's personally relevant and localized like that really is what we want to do so that climate change isn't like this abstract monolithic thing but it's something that we can ground down to and and understand that it's also experienced differently depending on where you live how the geography affects it all of those pieces so i think that really is best practice and then to have that solutions orientation of community-based action like let's do something in our community so that that's like that's what that's like the best right that's what we want um in terms of what we found when um last summer we interviewed teachers we surveyed and interviewed teachers across canada a couple of things that i think is maybe helpful is again this affirming piece about that teachers uh are really the best decision makers around what should happen in their classrooms. And we we're really happy to see that they're integrating it in subjects where there's no curriculum expectations. Like there's teachers integrating into math, into drama, into where there's no explicit mention. So that's like really great um, to see. And that doesn't surprise me because I work in teacher education. I see all of the future oriented, caring people we graduate every year. But I think one of the things that was interesting um, that came up in our research is that teachers, um, the majority of them sort of cherry pick resources. So they often will, um, they'll often take from this resource, this resource, this resource to then find a way to tie it to curriculum. So they say that what they provide in the classroom is always connected to curriculum but they seem to do a lot of curating and creating, innovating among their resources for those. I mean, the teachers that we sampled are motivated. They were motivated enough to fill out a survey. We asked them and then do a follow-up interview. So it, it's not a representative like um, subsection of teachers. Um, but I think that that's really interesting. So when like for orgs that are developing programmatic pieces or resources, 
just to recognize that it's good to have them be short pieces or like that, that a teacher could take this one piece and then take this other piece, depending on so that your content is curriculum tied, but it's not like they have to necessarily do the whole entire, you know, two week lesson plan, whatever, like, cause they do tend to, um, cherry pick. No, that's great. Um, it's really interesting to listen to you because yeah, so much of what we do at Live at Earth is all our programs are tied to curriculum, but also centering around these issues, big, big issues in various communities around Canada. So I think that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of connection there anyway, with the work that we do. Do you have any further thoughts um, around climate change within the school system? And, you know, are we headed to a point where it's going to be brought into the curriculum in a meaningful way, or is it going to be the teachers, as you mentioned, just bringing it in themselves? That's a great question. And I wish I had like a crystal ball <laughs> I could like call upon. So I would say from my vantage point, um, like as we were talking earlier, um, I'm on the team of six authors who are developing for UNESCO, the greening education guidelines that countries are will be suggested to implement. So we, at least we have a framework and, um, but it does feel like we are at a groundswell where climate change education um, all of a sudden is named and its absence is clear, right? Uh, the One of the challenges in Canada is the federated education system. So we have subnational jurisdictions. So we don't have a national curriculum um, and research I've done on the subnational level, we we evaluated every single curriculum, uh, territorial and provincial, and it's real. There's so, so many levels of policy incoherence. So there's a lot of work to do in reorienting it to ensure that every student um, has. Uh, some mandatory climate change education. Currently, a lot of it's sitting in those grade 11, 12 electives is where you see the majority of the expectations. And so there's a lot that needs to be done there. And there's a lot um, of sort of shifting it away from just sort of the, the climate science and the cognitive and rather seeing it as a lens through which we see all of the subjects, right? That we need to broaden our subject understanding as well as our sort of dimensional. So see the justice piece, the action oriented and the socio-emotional rather than just focus on it cognitively. So there's a lot of work there, but um, we one of the things that I think is really interesting is in Canada, how the calls for truth and reconciliation were made and, and the school system responded. And, you know, you can hear critiques around that implementation, but there was quite quick implementation of um, truth and reconciliation within schools. And so I'm hopeful uh, that we will see that with climate change education. And we just have to find ways to keep policymakers and school board administrators accountable and also depoliticize it. We need to constantly find ways to depoliticize this and to show that we need this, young people need it. Um, I would love to see 
the uh, the Education Act in Canada, right, which is what we have, which governs the responsibility of um, of our school boards to ensure that children are safe, and there's guidelines around that. And this notion of um, loco parentis or like supervision, um, but when we think about intergenerational injustice and harm that young people are experiencing. And we're seeing young plaintiffs take governments to court around this intergenerational human rights-based claims. Can the same be said around our education system by not providing young people the skills to be able to, to be, to be able to um, not just survive, but I mean, there's a whole emerging carbon economy like this, you know, there's so many opportunities here. And if you look at the the current trajectory or the current um, framework that subjects go through, I mean, how are they preparing young people also for AI? How are they preparing young people for the realities that we're facing in the 21st century? Um, and what young people will be graduating into. So I think it's a real moment for education systems to to pivot and to reorient and to do so quickly. Um, and it's possible. Uh, we saw with COVID-19 that we saw governments take quick responses. We saw school systems take quick responses. It's possible if the leadership is there. That's great note to end on. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, super interesting talking to you. And um, yeah, good to end on a positive note too. Uh, because yeah, there are lots of big things coming. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today. And um, I'm really glad we connected. And I hope to keep in touch because yeah, a lot of the work that we do is very much aligned with the work that you are also doing. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for joining us on The 21st Century Teacher and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Please do subscribe so you don't miss out on the next show. And also don't forget to check out our fantastic online learning platform, which is liveit.earth. Thanks again and we'll see you soon.